For listeners of Film Jive, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check out their service. To do so, you can simply go to audibletrial.com filmjive. That's audibletrial.com filmjive to claim your free audiobook download today. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Film Jive Podcast. I am your host, Zach Patanti, and on today's show, I'm joined by co-hosts Andrew Swope and Simone Barros. We are recording on June 5th, 2016. This is episode number 95, where we are discussing Joseph Losey's 1967 British psychological drama, Accident, starring Dirk Bogard, Stanley Baker, Michael York, and Jacqueline Sissard. Describe to me what we're all doing. Rosalind's lying down. Stephen's weeding the garden. Anna's making a daisy chain. We're having this conversation. Good. But then you could go further. Rosalind is pregnant. Stephen is having an affair with a girl at Oxford. He's reached the age where he can't keep his hands off girls at Oxford. What? But he feels guilty, of course. So he makes up a story. What story? This story. What are you talking about? <laughs> These flies are terrible. Flies? There aren't any flies. They're Sicilian horseflies from Corsica. Have you heard our conversation? Yes. Yes. The opening of Joseph Losey's accident begins quite literally with the aforementioned incident of the title, a car accident. Yet this event remains in shadow, with a fixed camera foregrounding the dimly lit English countryside estate of our protagonist, Oxford professor, Stephen. Before the piercing tires lose their traction can be heard, the nocturnal world must speak. Bombastic aircraft, a fevered typewriter, barking dogs, the screech of an owl, this story inhabits the subterranean realm. When Stephen hears the crash and exits his lodgings, Losey only introduces a silhouetted figure, before immediately shifting to the smoldering full moon, followed by a startled white horse. With his back to the camera, Stephen gallops across the lawn towards the crash like a wolf closing in on his prey. From this moment forward, accident is embedded within a primordial am- animalistic force where black cats interrupt amateur tennis matches while goats rest in the college y- courtyard. Ivory swans seductively float along the riverbank and the b- male body can't help but violently thrust into another male body as they compete for the coveted caged Austrian bird Anna. Rituals of sport unleash a, fur- a fury of displacement, envy, and sexual inadequacy inadequ- which threatens to bring about the fall of man. But is sexual desire enough to motivate such primal behavior? And why does Joseph Losey's frame linger much more often on the male form when his characters are looking to feast upon female flesh? You mentioned the uh, 
the the frame lingering on the f- male form. Yes. Did you get a homoerotic like element to accident? I mean, I see what you mean, and there is a lot of like physical sport in in it. You know, a lot of jumping on each other. From the beginning, once we enter the flashback, where we immediately see Stephen and William's body, like in extremely close proximity to one another, sitting on the daybed. Well, they also, like, compliment each other's body. Michael York tells Dirk Bogart he still has a good figure. For a 40-year-old man, though, it's... Well, yeah, but you also don't really hear a male, like, oh, you have a nice figure. Mm-hmm. You could say physique or something, but figure is usually more given to, like, praising a woman's figure. The provost also uh, talks about um, Michael York's here. I can't think of his name right now. Um, William. William being a... Uh, such an athletic young man. Well, it's interesting, too, because in that same scene, we then see Stephen sit down next to the provost and mention that he saw his daughter, and he doesn't know who he's, who talking he's about. referring to. In many ways, men only see one another in this world or only mm-hmm. recognize one another. But there is this continual, I mean, I'm thinking about the lawn extended lunch party where instead of seeing Anna's sprawl out on the lawn we have charlie stretching stretching out mm-hmm. across the lawn while william lays next to him um, even when steven discovers charlie and anna in his home it's charlie's legs that he first notices and that's what we see as well also the the way that they're dressed in that scene um charlie is dressed in just the robe whereas uh anna's fully dressed she's wearing pants and i'm sure if i remember correctly Yes, I think that one of the things that I like about the film is the way the male relationships are portrayed because there is an intimacy that we have while the competition is simultaneously going between them and drives the protagonist's you know, relationship with both characters. He's competitive with William because of age, which he more comfortably conquers when Anna opts to walk with him during the Sunday, you know, lunch. But his competition with uh, Charlie is not so easily won, you know, it's more continued. And then Charlie really pulls an intense power play when he is lying completely, you know, the way you say sprawled out, he's the most comfortable. But we have where he says, Stephen is having affairs with his students. And his wife just lies and, and tries not to react. Stephen does react, but it's a, it's a very clear mechanism that Charlie uses to psych Stephen out. Stephen is now guilt-ridden, and we see that once nightfall comes and they're going to bed, and he walks up his staircase, and it's Anna going up the stairs. He could easily follow her, but he doesn't. He kind of goes to his wife and painstakingly tells her he loves her. Something you mentioned that Stephen easily conquers, you know, William's youth when Anna agrees to go for a walk. Uh, but I actually think that sequence is is where the structure of the film being this this flashback is where you kind of most see how Stephen's memory is potentially manipulating the outcome of events 
because the scene begins with William asking Anna to go for a walk, and then she responds, I'm so comfortable, and then William exits the frame. And then after some conversation, Stephen states, I think I'll go for a walk, to which she replies, I go too. Perhaps they did go for a walk, but the events which led to the walk don't feel genuine, especially when immediately following that sequence, we get we see a medium of William pouting on a tree branch like an adolescent. Rosalind is wheeling the tea trolley inside, and Charlie has been completely excised from the sequence altogether. We have no idea where he is. So there seems to be stitching that's absent. That scene is more Stephen's sort of manufacturing of how he he wanted that incident to play out. Um, it's even how in during the walk, Anna asks, are there many Dons like you? Which is an appeasing question. But it also, as the scene concludes and we see that his attempt to seduce her is thwarted, in my mind, that scene becomes the clear shifting point for his character. It feels more like a nostalgic memory. What he wants to remember is this temporal space which he's created in order to reflect on a time where he could still succeed with her. I agree that it's definitely a pleasing memory of his, and it's one that he would enjoy. And I do think I agree that the film takes place strictly from his perspective, but I don't think it was false. I think that, you know, when he reaches out for her hand, I don't think she absolutely rejects, rejects him at that point. I think she is open to being in a romantic relationship or sexual relationship with him. I saw him exercise restraint, and I think that restraint he exercised uh, based on his affair with Francesca was simply enforced because Charlie led, planted a seed of guilt. He is the most laborious in the scene. Everyone else is relaxing, and he's actually working in the garden. So I think while his ego is appeased, he kind of makes this decision, and I think he resents Charlie because he knows very clearly what Charlie was doing. So I, I do think it happened that she, I do think Anna was open to him. I think Anna was attracted to him. Do you feel like we're observing memory, but it's still an objective observation? No, no, no. I think it is subjective. I just think that the subjectivity is not entirely deceitful. I think we are seeing it from his perspective, but I don't think that his perspective is very far from. Maybe not, but to me, it's clear that he, it being his memory, it manipulates certain moments. One of the most obvious ones is when he falls into the river and the fact that we don't see the actual fall seems like his, a, a deliberate obscuring of something. It's even just the way that certain dialogue scenes, how there seems like there's a missing shot. After Stephen discovers Charlie and Anna's affair in his home, there's a moment where they're all standing in the bedroom doorway together. And Stephen is making this very intense, unbroken stare at Anna, which Charlie, in his body language, clearly acknowledges. So there then is a cut to Anna's face looking at both of them, 
And then there's an abrupt cut to Charlie, which says it's on its way, which he's referring to the taxi. But there's no – the conflict of that moment is completely removed. Yeah. And that happens repeatedly throughout the film. We never see – when uh, Stephen makes – suggests that William and Anna come to lunch to William, and he says, but I'll ask Anna myself – we don't see William's response to Stephen telling him that we'll do that because it's it's a unusual demand or request that, well, you and your girlfriend could come to lunch, but let me ask your girlfriend for you. Yes, I agree. I think those things are definitely coming from Stephen's perspective. I just don't think that Stephen is the unreliable narrator that we see in other films or other literature. Well, I don't think I don't think whether he manipulates things or not, whether his memory is manipulating or obscuring moments. I don't know that that makes him unreliable. It just means that that's what his that's what he's choosing to remember. We don't have another perspective in the film to to base off whether his account is true or not. I'm just saying that there's clear formal decisions that indicate to the audience that we're not getting everything or that what we're getting is is perhaps an exaggeration of something or a manipulation. Well, that's what I don't think. I don't think he's exaggerating anything. I do think that what I do think Anna's selection of him over William for that walk is exactly what is intended to be. But I guess that leads to the question of how much do you think Anna herself is manipulating the men. She's aware of what she's doing. She is enjoying the attention that they're giving her. She's enjoying the sexual... But they're not giving her any attention. (laughs) That's what's so hysterical about it. Their lust for her is leading them to completely ignore her because they can't... Yeah, they're driving them to each other. That's where I feel like I, I question Anna's awareness Yes, she's aware that she's sleeping with Charlie, and she knows that she has this relationship with William. But I'm not, I am not convinced that she completely knows what she's doing to Stephen. Yeah, I don't think she has any lustful intentions for Stephen whatsoever. Now, I do agree with Simone in that I don't think Stephen as a narrator is altering memories. I do believe she went on the walk with him, but I believe it was simply a friendly platonic walk that he may have wanted more, but he's almost like all thumbs that he can't do anymore. But I think I agree with Zach in that I don't think she has any kind of intentions on Steven or she even realizes what she's doing to him, per se. I I guess I just feel that to so openly contradict your boyfriend asks you on a walk, you say no. You know, your professor asks you on the walk, you say yes. That's not an innocent gesture or an unknowing gesture. That gesture has attraction in it. Charlie didn't even know that they were engaged to be married, for instance. Like when he said it after William's dead, after um, Stephen tells Charlie, oh, they're engaged to be married. He's like, no, they're not. Like, he didn't believe it. So it's almost like, yeah, I guess they're boyfriend and girlfriend. But I don't know if anyone else really realizes that. Oh, yeah, she just chose. She chose not to share that with Charlie. 
And I think that's when Charlie starts to unravel. That's when Charlie switches. The power shift in the relationship between Charlie and Anna uh, makes a very clear shift at that moment. Yeah, but I don't think the power goes from Charlie to Anna in the relationship. I think it goes from Charlie to Steven in that relationship because he's the one that says, like, leave her alone and walks her out completely ignoring Charlie and leaves Charlie in a daze. I mean, Steven's the one in power in that scene at the end. I think Steven takes the power shift and places himself as the alpha male, but Charlie initially is undermined by Anna. It's Anna leaving. It's Anna, you know, not answering him. It's mm-hmm. Anna not talking to him that puts him in a vulnerable situation. Stephen definitely takes advantage and gloats in a very subtle and, you know, subversive way over knowing about the Yeah, I think him engagement. mentioning the engagement is his way of gloating over, gloating over Charlie in that scene. So I do think that you're right in that, you know, it's in the blocking of it, the staging, and camera work, it's Charlie that goes to his knees and is pleading and talking to Stephen, asking about Anna's intention. But I also think that has to do with how these men view women anyway. Yeah, I mean, these women almost, Mm -hmm. like um, Stephen's wife and Charlie's wife and Anna almost just seem to exist in their life in the background. Like when the uh, when he goes to, out to dinner with Francesca, how there's the sign that they like focus on that says "keep women as pets" mm-hmm. or "keep your wife as pets." I mean, essentially, that's what they do. Yes. I mean, when they're playing tennis, Stephen's wife is caged. Almost, I mean, they're the four that are actually in the cage, but she's caged, separated from them. Charlie's wife seems so aloof and almost like nutty when she's gardening. Yeah, I mean, it's these beautiful. like the yeah. women literally just exist in their life. Charlie even mentions he hasn't seen his wife in weeks. And this is before she knew that he was actually having an affair. And even the absence of his wife, the camera is aware during the squash game that Rosalind has left. No one else is even aware of it, yeah. Right, are aware. So I agree with you, and I do think that the framing of her behind the gate, you know, was intentional to express, you know, a sense of um, encaging. And what's also interesting is, once again, there is this motif of the pregnant woman being the innocent of all of the characters. And, and, and her scene where she learns about Charlie's affair with Anna. She reacts like a normal person. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and she remains in this realm of uh, having some sense of perspective that everyone else seems to have lost, including, you yeah. know, Charlie's wife. In, I think, the way the scene where she's barefoot you know, walking through this garden that she's watering, even though it's raining, which I really, I love that. I love the colors of that scene. I, I love the absurdity of the scene, but I love that the absurdity isn't extravagant. It still fits within this very subtle and melancholy film. But in that regard, she loses her sensibilities, whereas, you know, Rosalind always remains kind of sensible and comfortable and at ease. Even her responding and saying that she hears Charlie's comment. And she just simply says, I hear it too. I do think, though, um, it is interesting that Rosalind, the events of the story really escalate once she's no longer living in the house. You know, and I do think it's ironic that she is pregnant, but it also it also seems to me to communicate that she is kind of the womb which protects Stephen or 
inflicts some kind of restraint. Yeah, she grounds him. Without her presence, he kind of goes off half cock and does everything that he knows he shouldn't be doing. From the Francesca affair to, well, the, what he does to Anna at the end. But she also is clearly the person who kind of, um, she protects the house. Like, once she is gone, that is when the house becomes ev- invaded. Charlie and Anna invade the house. Yes, I agree with you. And I think that the color and lighting enforce that through in a metaphorical way, in that when... Once Rosalind leaves, we, at that point, mainly see the house at night. We mainly see it in in shadows and in soft contrast that we get. Whereas when she was there, when we were there with everyone on Sunday, we saw it bright. We saw it lit. You know, we could really see the visibility. I also think that that's something that I like and comes from a theater where it, it chronologically being in a certain setting for an extended period of time, the way they are that Sunday increases and ramps up the tension to where there's this like heightening and almost breaking point that we have by the time they're at dinner. But Joseph Losey, having come from theater and directing theater understands that and does a wonderful translating or, or figuring out a cinematic ratio for that kind of tension building and I love his framing which I think also is coming from theater blocking um, at the end of the dinner when William has drank too much and you have these planes of action and frame within a frame of Stephen and Charlie at the table flanking the frame and then past them the door frame and past them William is teetering and and you know needs help from Rosalind to go up the stairs and even just the planes of light that are in that shot, I think are absolutely beautiful. And I think become a metaphor. Well, I think the darkness that happens later in the film in the house is clearly also kind of uh, referring back to what we were talking about at the beginning, where the outside has now and have has come inside, which further expresses the animalism of these characters Yes. Yeah, I think that this is a really difficult role for Dirk to have managed because there's so many nuances for Steven's character. Are you guys buddies? On first name basis, yeah, I was thinking <laughs> No, honestly, I have forgotten his last name. What is it? Bogard is his last name, right? I honestly forgotten at that moment. What, what what was his actual his birth name? Yeah, I know. All I remember is Derek Von Bogard or something, but yeah, he has. I think Ulrich maybe is one yes, of the names. Yeah, yeah. And... yeah. Niven. <laughs> yes. No, Derek Jules Gaspar Ulrich Niven van der Bo Bogardy Bogard. <laughs> Which is interesting because when he makes the comment where he says that Han- Anna's name is long, as a response of her being an Austrian princess, I think introduces the level of class and aristocracy that plays in, in, in for him um, because he seems to be the one that deals the most with William being an aristocrat and his feelings of inadequacy. Yes, in but that. I also think the, the princess uh, assumption comes from William's assumption. I agree with you. I think that demonstrates a complete incorrect cultural knowledge on the part of of both characters. 
and and also how disinterested both seem to be in her background anyway. Except that um, Stephen and Rosalind make fun of it. Like, they kind of tease over it. Yes, no, I agree. I mean, I, I do think, I didn't know how much this was sort of carryover from the clear sort of anti-colonial themes of the servant, but I do think there are certain imperialistic there's a certain imperialistic subtext that does present itself in this film um and that you do you have two older statesmen who are professors at this archaic institution like Oxford rather than an an in an environment that perhaps would invite more liberal or independent thinking and then you have the younger statesman who who comes from this inherited privilege and they're all coveting the affection of a a foreign woman. I think there is a commentary in it. I think the commentary comes through with the intercutting of a conversation that William and Stephen have of the stone gargoyles that are at Oxford. I think that absolutely that St- Stephen is out of sorts at the game that William is saying, oh, we play this game. And you're right, it feels very archaic. And the setting that they're in is this old castle that for most people looks like a museum. And they're in, you know, the center of it. Even the women and men that are standing around are are standing in these frozen poses that seem to mimic the statues that are behind them. Um, And then I think that comes again when we see Stephen carry his academic robe over his shoulder. We don't see him actually have it on until the end of the film where he's walking through the Oxford campus. Um, and then that's when he fully has it on. So it's like the transition or the, the wolf at bay or what kind of parallel you may be making that he is uh, a professor, I do think is a commentary that doesn't happen until the end until we see the fullness of the capacity of his character. But I also think the the colonial attitude is expressed in how they how they see women as territories. They see the woman as a territory to conquer or to explore. One of the most interesting things about the film is that never do any of the men really engage with Anna in conversation that is either platonic or really any conversation at all other than, you know, fleeting comments. And then as you're mentioning about the the women just kind of being in their lives, I think there is a, the infidelity in the eyes of, of Stephen and Charlie is kind of looked at as common ritual among men of their status. I never felt there is a legitimate threat to either man that their marriages are in jeopardy. And I think Charlie's marriage, that's indicated in the letter that Laura sends to Stephen and then sees Stephen's scene with Laura where she, there is sort of this, he'll eventually come around. He'll see how silly this all is. Right, and I think that was one of the most demeaning moments, intentionally demeaning, not accidentally demeaning, but demeaning in the fact that Stephen refuses to read the letter and then Charlie opens it himself and reads it and is is making fun. I even think Anna's response when when Stephen sets the omelet down and Charlie begins to eat it 
she has a resentment there and she's like, you didn't want this, you know, and obviously there's a, there's the metaphor of you only are with me because I'm available. This egg was set before you. And so you're partaking in it. And same thing with her. She was set before him. And so he's partaking in it. But I also think that her attitude is coming out of the fact that he has ridiculed his wife, made fun of his wife by reading her pleading sincere letter and that it's pathetic in that she will have him back. He also, though, has in the dinner table, the supper scene when they're all uh, inebriated. He does sort of defiantly defend his wife. Uh, And it clearly does irritate Anna, uh, where he is talking about my wife is a wonderful person. She understands me. We're all old friends. Don't. And, And he keeps pointing at Anna and saying, don't you forget it. So I do think that that, at least for me, it demonstrated some sense of guilt that Charlie does have, perhaps. Or just, I think it reflects what you were saying earlier, that this is common, this is accepted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he's almost like putting her in his place. The wife should be the one that ultimately they come home, like the pet, that they will leave, they will deviate, but they will return to this yeah. This marriage institution, the same way they accept their college as this institution that they are a part of. But I think that's what's so interesting to me about Anna agreeing to marry William and about Charlie's insistence that she cared for him, that it was more than an affair for her. Whereas he keeps it very clearly that this is just an affair for him. But when she indicates that same kind of putting him in a place it bothers him it it unravels him like it completely scatters him and she remains very composed i love the way in the frame she becomes just a shadow so her presence is there even though the men are not acknowledging her presence i think the women are very much self-contained even the scene with francesca i love that scene um because of how francesca is not a confused you know it's not like Here is this lover that she mourned or so pleased with him coming back. It seems uh, it seems a a dalliance for her, like a a nice moment to return or enjoy this, you know, interaction with him. But the fact that it's filmed in a way where we never see them talking on screen, but we hear their dialogue while we watch them on screen and interacting with each other. And I think it's a it's a case of uh, also use the use of color. You know, that she's in the very gold and yellows, her outfit as well as her bed sheets. And again, it's it's an isolation of a scene. I'm very much like Charlie's wife scene where we have a completely different device that's being used, but yet it feels natural within the entire context of the scene. Yeah, it's an intriguing sequence because the casting of Delphine Seerig and the unsynchronized soundscape, it does put the film in some kind of conversation with a lot of other roles that that actress performed as. It was actually, I mean, the most obvious one is last year in Marion Bad, but she also had roles in films like India Song where her character, the image of her character never speaks, but we only hear her character through voiceover, which has led some people to think if that was a a choice that the actress continually 
suggested to directors in the roles that she played because it was so it was such a common device in the films that she was in. That's really interesting. Uh, every time I've seen it used in film, I feel like it heightens tension at the same time it, it disorients without without putting you in a state of panic. It has this dreamlike quality to it that I think is Well, I really think that's nice. the intention here that it's it's carving a temporal space where we're observing something that is is happening, you know, chronologically within the story, but we're also observing a memory and a thought. The ritual of the sequence indicates that, you know, this is this is something that has happened time and time before. Yes. And so there's nothing really specific about this particular encounter that these two people are having. I I do think it's a pivotal uh, scene because from the reunion, Stephen remains unsatisfied. And I think, you know, his intention in, in visiting Francesca was to alleviate the inadequacy that he feels uh, with Anna. Instead, it, it further exaggerates those anxieties for him. Yes, I agree. Don't you think he went in for his affair with Francesca to bolster his esteem, to build it up after it's kind of been broken down? After Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It, does, it isn't successful. Completely. It isn't successful, though, because she's no longer, she's no longer youthful. Yeah, she's become like old, <clears throat> old hat compared to Anna. She's, she's just as much, she's, she's like his wife, you know, it's. Oh, I didn't, I didn't feel that she was like his wife because I feel that that scene directly preceding where he visits his wife and her parents makes his wife have a certain sadness to her in that she is, she still has the sensibility of they're all so stupid are these stupid people. Why are people doing these stupid things? But, but she's by the way of her husband, right. she's still, her husband is cheating on her and, and she does know it. And yet in a different way from Charlie's wife, except, but, it, but it's I, all, so but Francesca in some is, ways it's all the more pathetic because Steven's not even enjoying the cheating. <laughs> why do you feel that Steven didn't enjoy his time with Francesca? I would say that the sequence and the body indicates well, also with a, them a, laying laying in bed after and the way they're they're twiddling twiddling each other the feet like it's there's nothing there's nothing exciting about it like when when men embark on affair, affairs it's because there's an excitement this affair for him is no longer exciting yeah, I agree. The whole thing felt very domesticated, the way that they ate dinner together and the way the, the whole scene with the waiter, how he's pulling the waiter back to get more whatever he was eating, potatoes or whatever. There was just something very like, this is something we just do. Yeah, it's just kind of like a, a process now. We go through these motions. That's interesting because I didn't think, I didn't pick up that it was an unsatisfying affair. I thought that it was a dreamlike, you know, intoxicating, seductive type of thing. I, I guess I thought, I felt them going through the motions definitely indicate they've done this before, but I didn't feel that it, uh, I completely did not read it as being lacking for but also I think it's further evidence that when Stephen mentions her to the provost that he says, well, I don't know when I'll be seeing her again. And I think it does mean that he's, he's ready for the next conquest and he wants that to be Anna. 
I see the most evidence for your interpretation in the fact that when he's at the television station, the producer confuses Francesca for his wife. And even though he knows that he had an affair with her, but then he keeps saying, tell Francesca, I said, hi. like he thinks Francesca is the woman that he married. So maybe there is there that is further of this this interpretation that you're giving. But if that is what's happening, then that's extremely um, pitiful. But Stephen is pitiful. <laughs> it's part of what makes him such a compelling protagonist is that you as an audience member, to some degree, do pity him. I guess I didn't fully pity him until the unconsensual sex with Anna. And also clearly a man not being honest with himself. Because when William first mentions Anna to Stephen, Stephen's response to William is that as her tutor, I have to look out for her well-being. And William makes the joke, oh, sorry, you her protector, which is, is a clear foreshadowing of then later what he is going to do to her. But it also is clearly dialogue, which is an attempt by Stephen to mask his true feelings for her. Yes, and I think it's a it's a it's a power. The subtext of it also is that William is saying you're the father. You you've moved on. You're no longer sexually viable. No, no, but but William isn't saying that. That I think William is saying no, but that. no, Stephen think... is implicating that I'm the father. William doesn't make he. William just asks him, "What do you think of her?" I interpreted Stephen as being more like I'm her gatekeeper. Sure. No, there, there, there is that because he is upset when he sees them in the canal together and he says, right. I didn't know you two met. I'm the tutor. I'm the person that is supposed to be. So I didn't think that Stephen pictured himself as being her protector. He pictured herself. He's pictured, you know, having a gatekeeping quality. And then when William cast him as the protector, he resents that. He's resentful of that. And, that, and that's where sort of the competition is on. Like, that's like the throwing down of the gun. Well, I don't know, because I, I also feel that maybe you're right, but I do think then Stephen embraces that role to some extent. Embraces being the protector? Yes. I don't think he does. I think Stephen maybe doesn't embrace it, but he's trying to clasp onto some kind of role in this situation. And then Charlie's presence again undermines that. Yes. I do think so much of what escalates Stephen's behavior is him feeling displaced, especially within his own home. Once William and Charlie arrive, William assumes the role of assisting Rosalind in the kitchen while Charlie plays with the children outside. His entire sense of identity is invaded. He's outperformed on the tennis court when... He offers lodgings to William at the house. William refuses him at the dinner table. Charlie outdrinks him. When he serves them whiskey, they both completely disrespect him. And yet he, he toasts them anyway. Yes, I agree. And especially when Charlie is talking about his television experience or his television experience comes up. I don't think Charlie brings it up, but when he says it's the medium for you 
And then Rosalind makes a comment. He fits the medium, is what she says. And he says, so are you saying I don't fit the medium? And he's clearly upset with his, there, there is competition that he doesn't like feeling in the eyes of his wife between him. He's just consistently being rendered insignificant. But his behavior, you know, it's also when he, he learns of Charlie and Anna, what does he do? He gives Charlie a key to the house. Even after Charlie clearly undermines his masculinity by saying, that's a short robe you have. Right. But him giving the key, I do think it's an attempt, he's a, a, an attempt to some kind of like, maybe not parental, but some kind of control of the situation. He's able to stay in the triangle by kind of playing the safe man. So everything that all of his faults, I mean, he has only himself to blame because he allows himself to be treated like that because he feels that's the only way he can be part of everyone's life. Mm -hmm. You guys mentioned a couple times that it's like a competition. I actually don't see it as a competition. Charlie won. William is so oblivious to everything that's going on. I don't even really see him in kind of any competition. And Stephen's such a loser that I don't believe he's in competition either. Like Charlie won. Like, almost, like, de facto. I mean, like, he's the only one that shows any kind of awareness to the situation and backbone. He's the winner. William is so oblivious. I don't even think he realizes that Charlie or Stephen have any kind of open desires for Anna. There is evidence of what you're saying in the tennis court scene when Charlie hits the ball towards Anna's behind. And they and both Charlie and Stephen laugh. William is just kind of standing there rendered mute. Like it's either he's too concentrated on the, the actual tennis match to even be really aware of what happens, or he doesn't even know what to make of what happened. Well, and also the party that um, William and uh, Stephen play that weird game at, Anna's not at, although she was invited to, but she came up with a reason why she couldn't come and William doesn't question it or anything. He's just like, okay, she can't make it. Well, I think that that's, though, evident of the fact that she's clearly having a sexual relationship with him as well. I, I read that, though, that he's just as, not that necessarily that they're having a sexual relationship, but more of that he has no reason not to feel confident he, because he's oblivious to the other things around him. He's led such a charmed life, he's never had to worry about other things. I do think that it is that they're having a sexual relationship, that Anna and William are, because I don't think it would escalate to fiance if not for that and i do think that yes william is oblivious at the same time william would be suspicious if he weren't if he weren't in a sexual relationship with anna it would raise suspicion and so the fact that suspicion is not raised um he's oblivious and and very confident in his youth and yes he is folly in the film the, the gaze of the film is that he is out of, so to speak, the competition early on, you know, not only with the walk and he pouts standing at the tree, but then the fact that he becomes so intoxicated so quickly and leaves the dinner table. Well, the fact that he's helping Rosalind in the kitchen while the other two are out doing whatever also kind of renders him to the kitchen, to the wife, right, which is to a woman's another role. great example of the planes of action and the framing that we're in the kitchen and then we have the window of the kitchen frames, the, them playing and they move in and out of that kitchen frame. Well, Charlie interrupts. Charlie kind of comes up and throws right and becomes this separator and again throws this ball, you know, making William this young boy. You know, here, catch the ball, you know, that kind of thing, play with this. But what I think is interesting, why what then makes Anna and and lends to the 
self-possession that the women have is that Anna's relationship with William does not suffer because of her affair with Charlie. William continues and she is now, you know, in a position to marry someone who is very wealthy and comes from, you know, what clearly is an aristocratic background. I think that story element keeps her in a seat of being in, in control of her sexuality until Stephen, you know, takes, takes it. And I think that that is where William remains a virile man throughout this is, is because of her choice of him, her choice to continue to include him. Um, one thing I was wondering, um, one of the scenes at the kind of luncheon at Stephen's house, when he can't find Anna, he does come to Stephen and Charlie asking, where's Anna? Like coming to two adult men who would know, mm-hmm. whereas he doesn't. But also the other thing with um, the whole kind of relationship between Anna and William, does she actually care for him, though, even if they are having a sexual relationship? Is there any care? I mean, because I do believe the her stepping on his face to get out of the car is important the fact that she is stepping on him and that we have uh, Stephen say it and we also have I think multiple flashbacks to the actual event of her stepping on his face to get out of the car yeah well I, I do think it's in also after she gets out of the car the, the first thing she tries to do is reapply her lipstick so she's either completely oblivious to what's even going on or she I thought it was she combs her hair no she's trying to put lipstick on She's not combing her hair when she's sitting on the... She's definitely trying to put lipstick on. She, maybe she's combing her hair at some point, but... I mean, that can also be... That's a behavioral shock. When you're in moments like that, you go into shock and you do habitual things. I agree with you, but for a film like this, I do think the actions that he's showing us are meant to mean something. Even though that is something that someone in shock may do, just go about normal routine... I think him, Losi showing that to us is supposed to signify something more than this is just a habitual routine. It's also not, at least in my opinion, in keeping with the characterization of her. She's a completely monochromatic figure. I mean, one thing I was going to mention about the question of does she care for care for Stephen, uh, one thing I did read is that apparently the statue, the figurine that she exits her dorm with at the end of the film is the Hindu goddess of death and destruction, <laughs> which su- yeah. suggests that she's, you know, a siren or, you know, maybe in this ca- context, like a femme fatale or something. But I guess for, for me, what makes her, un- what makes it unconventional, and I know we don't agree about this, is that her influence, in my mind, is appears unintentional. It's, it's been dictated to her by male machismo. It is saying that she is self-possessed. I mean, she remains, even after she is raped, she remains composed. She decides to leave. You know, she is, is definitely affected and is traumatized when she's in the car and she's completely, like, disengaged. But I don't think that she was a helpless pawn in the situation. And I do think that, that her stepping on his face doesn't show so much that she doesn't care about him. I think it just shows that she is a person who will, she will live through this. She will make it out of this, you know, as, as is what is exactly happening in that accident. Again, this is my, me trying to find, forge these relationships between, you know, animals in the film. But I do think it is, 
potentially significant that she is introduced to us in her interaction with a goat. Because, you know, if you know of the the symbolism of goats or the mythology of goats is that goats are believed to have been, other than dogs, the earliest animal to have been domesticated by man. Um, and in mythology, the Greek gods were nourished by goat milk. And the goat figure is a sexual one. But I do think that, at least for me, the visual of Anna and the goat renders her role and it symbolizes her objectification. I don't think she's being objectified. She's the only character in the film who's able to claim like some kind of ter- territorial control over the house without ever having to engage in a territorial struggle. Right. That means she's, I don't think she's objectified. The only time where she's objectified is in the But that's, how, that's how she obtains the control. Right, so you're saying that she's not passive, which is what I'm saying. No, I'm just I'm just saying that she's not like she's not deliberately seeking that control. I think she is. I think she is seeking to engage in sexual relationships. And if that means that that puts her in a place of control, then it puts her in a place of control. There's no innocence about her character. Well, I'm not trying to say that she's innocent. I'm just saying she is really She's kind of indifferent to the games that these men are playing. She's she's assured in her relationship with William and she will she's assured in her affair with Charlie. And if they right. want to compete, they want to compete, but she's not particularly concerned or interested in in further exaggerating those conflicts. Yes, and I, I think that in that, she's not a pawn. You know, she, she doesn't have any delusions that Charlie loves her. She doesn't end her relationship with William. Well, but whatever, self, whatever self-possession she has, it doesn't matter because we're not seeing her. We're only seeing her through the eyes of this man. So within the perspective of this narrative, she is the pawn. No, I don't. For them so. all to move around the pe- the chessboard. I don't think she is a pawn. No, she she is something that they are. Now she is their undoing. For, they don't realize but a pawn that is someone who everything is happening to them. She wants not to be when she is done with her affair with Charlie. She succeeds in the ending of that affair with Charlie. But the end of her affair only comes because of William's death. Well, and Stephen raping her, I'm assuming. I actually think that's what drives her away more than anything. Mm-hmm. Right. I do think she leaves, yes. I think her sense of So she loss. is a pawn. She is only leaving because she is being forced to leave. But it's within because of her this incident. own power. She doesn't stay there and remain a victim to continuing to stay as, as much as Charlie pleads for her not to leave. She doesn't stay for them. She leaves because that is what is in her best. She becomes her own protector. Maybe to your point, the car accident is an indication of where she loses complete control of the situation. First physically with the car, and then when she is raped by by Stephen. This is where I do think her aristocracy is not completely misapplied. 
she behaves and carries herself the way where, what we would call a well-bred woman would carry themselves. And I think that she is meant to be contrast to the Mother Earth more figure that Rosalind presents. You know, even with even the fact that you know what he's doing while his baby is being born, and the the constant ringing, the phone, this again, the soundscape carries through this this phone that's ringing, beckoning him, calling him to cease. Well, I think the soundscape is is very much designed to support the flashback memory structure of the film. Because uh, much of the sound design is primarily defined by isolated sounds. I mean, even if you just take the opening sequence where Stephen is running to the scene of the accidents, his footsteps, the breathing, are nearly absent from the mix. Instead, it's in interior, entirely exterior sounds until he arrives at the vehicle. It's almost the reverse of uh, Vertigo in that regard whereas in vertigo it's you only hear the footsteps but even even then the like the most overt audible cue of subjective memory and like a temporal ship is the harpsichord see that's steven ex- finding the uh, the turned over car <laughs> <laughs> but i think the harpsichord is indicative of like uh there's been a jump in time you know he's maybe what we're seeing is a little more fragmented. Um. Yes, I do agree that the sound, and it's one of the things that I like about it very much, that it is extremely subjective and, and experiential. Even the opening voice, which I don't know if that just came by way of ADR, but the effect that came across in the beginning is very disembodying. Like, it doesn't even sound like it's when he says, William, like, it's 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 really bizarre. You're stepping on his face. Like, it just creates a mood that I actually like. Even with the bells tolling throughout the conversation and that we cut away and that the camera moves on cue with the bell toll. So I think there are some very measured and distinct sound choices that we already talked about with Francesca. But that phone ringing at the end is, and it's a device that you know filmmakers use a lot, but it really is a strong invasion or a call that he stops. And he doesn't stop. Alcohol played a major role in pretty much every bad decision that was made. Mm-hmm. Except when he rapes her at the end. That's the one time where alcohol didn't play a role in what he did. So I don't know if that's supposed to signify that's who he really is. As opposed to when they're at the luncheon party, they get so plastered. And that's kind of, I don't know if that's the first time Charlie and Anna have sex, but... When Steven is with uh, um, Francesca, before they have sex, they drink a lot at the dinner. They're always drinking in his uh, tutor office, tutoring office. Yeah, they drink constantly in the tutor office, too, as well. Yeah, that's true. I think it just could be something natural for Joseph Losey's world and Harold Pinter's world, that um, alcohol isn't demonized. Alcohol is a, it's, it's like the, the presence of food. Losey sh- went to such extremes showing them drinking before the dinner scene at the uh, at the house. And it created that great amount of tension. And then the fact that Michael York passes out from drinking too much, whereas the other two don't kind of show his inferiority. Right. So I think it didn't occur to he or Pinter to include alcohol because for them, alcohol is not necessarily a demonizing thing. 
But in the in the in the servant demon, I mean, alcohol is basically what cripples Tony. I think yes, in an enchanting way. I don't think in a demeaning in a, in a demonic way. Well, I don't know. The, the the last shot of the the servant is him completely out of it, holding a glass of alcohol <laughs> because he's been enchant. Yes, but I think it's an enchantment. I think it's a spell casting. I don't think it's a when you drink wine, you do bad things like that. He becomes victimized because of this mysterious liquid yeah. that he drinks. And I love the framing that it's past him. We just see the hands mm -hmm. and we hear his voice again. We hear voices while not seeing the lips move. And he says, well, where does it come from? And he goes, well, it's from a man that I got. and they're playing. You know, he's playing cards. Well, what's interesting when you're saying he's when you're when when you say he's playing cards, actually, Dirk Bogart's the character that's playing cards. He's playing solitaire. Yeah, I found that actually very interesting is that he's doing a solitary thing that Tony's watching. He's almost already has Tony right. enraptured. He doesn't need to go this further. He doesn't need to go further. Yes, but I, that's what I'm saying is them. And even if you look at the cards, the artwork that's on the cards is like the, the figures are naked. And so there is, I, but I think that's more, I don't think the, I don't, because the character in his intoxication doesn't then do something abhorrent. In fact, it's the reverse. It would be, you know, Dirk Brogard's character, mm -hmm. who we don't, we know that he is not intoxicated as he's orchestrating this moment. He's the one, and, and she does something. Um, the character, uh, Wendy Craig, I, guess, I think is the actor. Susan. Susan, she goes and kisses, yeah. you know, um, Barrett. And she, we know that she's not intoxicated. So I just think that for these filmmakers, Wine is enchanting, alcoholism is alcohol is inebriating, but it is not the thing that makes you do bad things. Well, it's yeah, it's it definitely dulls your senses to allow bad things to happen to you, though. Around you, yes, yes, which I think is, is more spell casting and, you know, that kind of thing. It definitely allows you to be in less in control, but it doesn't then make you a, a raging, violent you human beings are that you know and I, I think this definitely accident has a lot of human behavior that we're trying to explore that we're trying to ask questions of um even the fact that at the end you know he he is ultimately settled you know in his home he is safe he still has he still has his family his children well his in a way wife. he's the only one that came out unscathed to a certain extent, he's unscathed. Yes, yeah. I mean, he's psychologically not unscathed, but yeah, it does not concern itself with punishing him. I do think the ellipses, though, does seal the characters within the this tension. In a way, the narrative we've been we know we've been watching a flashback, but yet we've it, it's only given us the illusion of some kind of resolution. We're, we're brought back to the starting point of the story, even with like circumstantial differences, you know, the time of day, the cause of an, of another accident. Uh, but we we've kind of been seduced and abandoned. Like Steven is going to remain entrapped. Yeah. Well, I mean, we hear the same sound effects again at the end with the car crash. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's forever trapped in his memory, I suppose. Oh yes. I like that interpretation. Yeah. And, and so then it, so there's a psychological prison that he may be in. I mean, I think even even the the framing of that shot being where we have the the gate or the walls there indicates some kind of that this is to some degree a cage for this character. 
Um, something that which occurs in in both the servant and accident are characters asking questions that either go unanswered or ignored. Whenever Charlie asks Stephen, you know, what does Rosalind think of what's going on, or do you see? Did you see the television people? Which he asks when they're having conversation on the stair. And he simply states, I'm hungry. Even Anna comes into the kitchen and asks, shall I cook? And he completely ignores the question. Well, he was already making an omelet. Well, you know, she could, she could have seen that. And then, and did he see who ate the omelet? Was Charlie, not Anna? They wasted pretty much the, the whole entire omelet. omelet. Like yeah, Charlie took, three, like three, took like three, three bites. bites. Yeah. And Stephen was like, I can't eat Did this. anyone eat that omelet on set? I think he forgot the ingredient. I didn't see like cheese or bacon or anything <laughs> he like was that. Like, Ugh. Did he make a Denver omelet? Was that his plan? I think that the metaphor that is being created is that I don't want it after you have eaten. Do you see? I think it was. I think you sullied Charlie. Sullied it. I don't want it. Yes, I think it absolutely was. I think it was absolutely a metaphor for Charlie's personality. Charlie takes when he wants, where he wants. If it's put in front of him, he's going to have it. I think that immaturity of, on both their parts is clear. And, and there is the woman expressing it. She's saying, you didn't want it. Her voice clearly is annoyed at that moment. So but it I do still think is an omelet. Yes, a quickly made omelet also. Like, there, you know, it was not. It couldn't have been fully cooked. I think we were supposed to read Anna saying, I've made omelets before and you haven't eaten them. But you're eat, but you, but you're eating Stevens. What's this about? Well, also his his dinner preparations they look like cold ham and lettuce. Did yes, you see? Yes, yeah. Which well, they what did they say though? They said it was going to be. He was going to make colds, but uh, Rosalind went ahead and made soup, which Charlie said was great soup. Yes. No, I love that. I mean, I love when people eat in food. Well, that's not an invention of the film, Simone, well, just no, so you understand. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying that I like when you and I were watching a movie and I and, and you criticized and I said, yeah, people should have eaten eat, more. Eat, pray, love. There should have been more eating in that movie. <laughs> I do. I really do. Eve, the servant also has food as a very well, he's a servant, unreal you know. part of. I saw Close Encounters the Third Kind and I was mad Richard Dreyfuss and eat those potatoes. <laughs> He's just playing with his food. <laughs> Making giant mountainous. <laughs> they look delicious. <laughs> Anyone who could eat the, that mountain of potatoes. That's why the aliens took him at the end. They were like, make these potatoes for us. They look marvelous. <laughs> that's our show for this week i hope you guys enjoyed our conversation on joseph losey's accident i'd like to thank andy swope and simone barros for joining me andy can be heard on the Stephen andy me batman podcast which can be found at stevenandy.blogspot.com you can also read andy's dvd and blu-ray reviews at rockshockpop.com and you can find simone's work at stochasticartworks.tumblr.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on the film or respond with any feedback you may have, you can do so by sending an email to filmjivepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Google+, Stitcher Radio, and subscribing to our iTunes feed. 
where you can also leave a review, which really helps us out in uh, reaching a wider net of listeners. And please be sure to visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive to start your free audible.com trial today. Thanks for listening. Check back in a few weeks for our next episode. And until then, remember to keep on jiving. about Joseph Losey. They described him. One um, reviewer felt their experience when he watched The Servant was uh, finally a sexy British film. And I think that carries through, too, to the, to the accident as well. They never saw Hobson's Choice? <laughs> he, he's talking from personal experience that when he went to the theater and saw The Servant. So he saw Hobson's that. Choice on TV. So. <laughs>